Hello, and welcome back to Bell's Library. This is going to be a bonus episode of sorts. It is kind of a rough, not very edited look at my initial thoughts on the way back from the press conference at the Sheridan Federal Prison that I attended on Saturday. Since I was in the car driving while I recorded this, I was unable to fact check some of it, so I will be interjecting with corrections and updates as needed. So I am on my way back. I just finished uh, attending the press conference. I tried to take video, but I'm not sure that any of the audio picked up. So I'm going to try to uh, recount to the best of my memory what was said. Um, So in attendance were both of Oregon senators, Senator Ron Wyden and Senator Jeff Merkley. Jeff Merkley was the one who put this event together today and arranged the visit to uh, to the prison. Also in attendance were... Congresswoman Suzanne Bonamici represents the district that the prison is located in. I will have to look up exactly which district that is, but um, we were in Yamhill County today. Suzanne Bonamici represents Oregon's 3rd District. And uh, Congressman Earl Blumenauer was also there, who represents the district that contains most of the Portland metro area. Again, I'll look up what number district that is later. Earl Blumenauer represents Oregon's 1st District. Um, so two Congress, uh, Congress people and, uh, our, both of our senators were in attendance. Um, so they went in and they met with a couple groups of, uh, detained immigrants. There are 123 immigrants currently being held at this federal prison. And they met with, I'm unclear on how many groups they met with, but I know they met with at least four different people, possibly in the first group. And as I recall, They said that one of them was a refugee from Brazil, one was a refugee from Honduras, and two were refugees from Mexico, if I understood that correctly. Uh, It sounds as if all of these people are refugees who came here seeking asylum. Many of the detainees at the prison were separated from family, including children. One of them had his one-and-a-half-year-old daughter taken from him. And uh, when Congressman Earl Blumenauer talked about this, he compared that to his thoughts of his own grandchildren and the fact that tomorrow is Father's Day and he had to stop talking. He was getting choked up and was needed a moment. According to the ACLU of Oregon, quote, the groups say the detainees being held in Oregon are men from different countries around the world, including India, Pakistan, China, Nepal, Ukraine, Guatemala, and Mexico. Many of the detainees applied for asylum at points of entry along the southern border of the U.S. Some of the men reported being forcibly separated from their partners and children and lack information about their family members' whereabouts. End quote. Some reporting I've seen says only a handful have families, but I'm unsure of the exact number. The first to speak was actually Senator Merkley. Then uh, he turned things over to Ron Wyden. Then Suzanne Bonamici spoke and then Earl Blumenauer but then they also continued to speak with each of the four of them, interjecting comments after that, and they took a few questions. Uh, I did not ask any questions because I felt that most of the questions that I would have asked were answered fairly well during the press conference. And a lot of the questions I wanted to ask, the answer was, we just don't know. And they're they're doing their best to find out more information. Uh, It sounds as if, I, I have to look up details on this, but... Senator Merkley is taking a group down to Texas tomorrow 
to visit some of these detention centers with children. And uh, Ron Wyden has opted to stay in Oregon tomorrow. He's going to be meeting with detainee lawyers so that he can try to get some answers about this. Now, the detainees nominally have access to legal representation and lawyers. However, there are limited rooms available to speak to lawyers and they cannot easily make phone calls because although they have a right to phone calls, we were told that uh, the phone calls cost money, the immigrants do not have money, and when Jeff Merkley said when he asked the prison officials how much a phone call cost, they could not tell him. There was no reason given for why they could not tell him the answer to that question. Having spoken with a contact who works at a county jail, it's possible that questions like this couldn't be answered because it was a weekend, and the prison may not have had regular command staff present. Apparently, visiting a jail or a prison on a weekend is problematic because knowledgeable higher-up staff who have answers to such questions will not be there. I'd be interested to know what sort of answer Senator Merkley might have received had he visited on a weekday, and if that answer would have been any different. So, the detainee's ability to contact lawyers has been very limited. And um, also, the detainees were given numbers that they could call to find out about the whereabouts of their children. And they were given numbers for lawyers. But then the numbers that were written down were taken away with their clothes, so they don't have access to those numbers. As a uh, Senator, I believe it's Senator Wyden kept saying this, these are rights in name only. They have these rights, but are not able to make use of them. They could not find out information about where their children were being held or the rest of their families. They could not talk with lawyers. I'm unsure where they made their border crossings, these specific people. Uh, I just know some general information about border crossings that was given to me. Oh, one of the uh, immigrants said to Ron Wyden, and he kept emphasizing this, and this is the man's words. Now, they were translated, but I am unsure if this particular term was translated because, of course, it is Spanish, but he said that he felt incommunicado. Like he could not contact anybody. And uh, Ron Wyden's words describing this were, he called it a legal no-man's land. The detainees are reportedly in cells that just contain a cot and a toilet and not a lot and like a, a sink and not a lot else. New reporting says they are being kept three to a cell. And they are reportedly kept in there for all but two or three hours a day. There were some different accounts of that, so they're trying to get information on exactly what is the truth about that, because they heard different accounts from different detainees they spoke to in different prison staff. So I think they're trying to get a, a detailed, a, an accurate report of how much time detainees are allowed outside of their cells. Um, most, let's see, uh, oh, at least two of the people that they spoke to said, well, one man had been shot in his home country before he came over to the U.S., and he still has unhealed wounds. They have had limited access to medical care, and uh, at least a couple of the detainees have open wounds that have not been treated. They were asked, what would happen to you if you were deported and sent back to your home country? And most of them answered, we will be killed. 
they these people are not coming over here on a whim. They are coming because they see no choice. If they want to survive and keep their families safe, they have to come to ask for asylum. That is what is happening here. These are not people who have decided to immigrate emigrate um, illegally. They cannot. It is you cannot actually apply for asylum from your home country. You must come to the U.S. and do it here. And although you can't, a lot of these people are legally allowed to apply for asylum and might not all be given it. Um, what I heard at the press conference today is that out of all the people who apply for asylum in the U.S., about one in five is granted asylum. However, as Jeff Merkley said at the press conference today. Correction. That was said by Congresswoman Suzanne Bonamici. There is no reason that these people cannot be treated humanely and given good treatment with their families while that process plays out because they are not criminals. The current administration is saying that they are criminals because they did not enter legally or through the correct process. As we understand it, the correct process is to enter at a border crossing. However, a lot of border crossings, they are told, wait, you can't come through now. Wait, some of these people have been there up to 10 to 12 days in this no man's land between countries waiting and waiting in the hot sun with their families. And as um, Jeff Merkley said, apparently good Samaritans, or it could have been Ron Wyden. As Merkley and Wyden were saying, some of these people have been waiting there for more than a week in the hot sun, and some of locals have been showing up to provide them with water. It is cruel and inhumane as far as conditions and to say that, oh, well, they can turn around and go back, it's dangerous. I've also heard in other reports, not from this press conference today, but I've heard in other news reports that a lot of the area around these official border crossings is controlled by uh, gangs and cartels and uh, traffickers, and it's difficult to safely get to a border crossing. So when you are forced to sit and wait, it makes sense that if you fear for your life and your family's lives and you are stuck in the hot sun with nowhere to be, it it is understandable that some of these people would choose to cross not at a border crossing. And then even if they are legally if they are legally qualified to apply for asylum, then they're called criminals and their children are taken away from them. And they are put in detention without access, without reasonable access to lawyers and any information about what has happened to their family. I think it's really important that we understand what is actually happening here. I've been uh, discussing some of this stuff with uh, people online who argue that, well, if you don't like it, don't bring your children here illegally. It is far more complicated than that. These people have no real choice. Their choice, as they see it, is to stay where they are and have their family hurt or killed or take their chances and come to the U.S. however they can, whether that is at a legal border crossing or not. I'm sorry, I have to step in here. I'm going down a country road and I just saw a sign for a candidate for governor running against Kate Brown and it says, make Oregon great again. And I, I just don't even know what to say about <laughs> Oh, makes me sick. Um, thinking about all of the things that are being done right now to these immigrants on top of 
Okay. They're trying to get more information. There's not a lot that can really be uh, said about where the children are because the detainees do not know. No, they're, the way that this is being handled, uh, I, I'm trying to remember who it was. I believe it was Earl Blumenauer, who maybe who said that this was lump and dump. Correction, that was said by Senator Ron Wyden. You lump all of these immigrants together and you dump them in various federal prisons across the country. I don't know how much track is being kept about who went where and where their families are, and I can't imagine how difficult it must be when they get out to reunite them. I heard at the press conference today about some of them had been uh, pressured to sign deportation papers, and it's there's a lot of questions still unanswered. It's very hard to know exactly what's going on. And I think that's part of the problem. There has been an extreme lack of transparency. The government is making this whole process as confused and opaque as possible. It seems out of lack of concern for the ability to track these people or on purpose to try to make them disappear, uh, which I wouldn't put past them at this point, especially with the news reports today that the person who originally pushed for this this zero-tolerance policy to go into effect was Stephen Miller, who has shown an extreme lack of concern for immigrants and uh, people who are suffering in the past. So I would not put that past them to be trying to disappear these people in a way that allows for them to have some plausible deniability about, oh, well, you know, we, we we lost track of them. New reporting as of Tuesday suggests that this policy was rolled out with no preparation or planning, and the lack of a system to reunite families has more to do with the fact that parents are being processed through the Department of Justice, while children are transferred to the Office of Refugee Resettlement under DHS and are treated as unaccompanied minors. There is no system in place to keep track of them between government agencies, and as of now, there is no reunification process of any kind. A former director of ICE said today, that he thinks many of these children will never see their parents again. I had very little notice about this press conference. I found out about it because I wanted to ask, uh, I, I first found out that Jeff Merkley went to the Brownsville Detention Center and was denied entry, and I wanted to ask more questions about it, and it occurred to me that I could try to get in touch with this office, especially since I am a constituent of this. So I called and was, uh, referred to his uh, press secretary. I think she has a different title, but that's what I remember off the top of my head. Her official title is State Communications Director for Senator Merkley. Uh, But her name is Sarah Hotman, and I contacted her, and I left a message for her, a voicemail, and said that I would, I gave her my email address and said that, because at the time, I I just finished teaching school for the year, but it's very hard to contact me when I'm at school because I'm on the floor without access to my phone. Uh, teaching kids. So uh, I gave her my email address and said I would like to ask her some questions. Uh, would that be all right? She said, absolutely. And so I, she emailed me and said, absolutely, please send me your questions. I sent them. I did not receive a reply. However, with the news that has come out since Jeff Merkley's visit to Brownsville, I think most of my questions have been answered in a lot of the news reports. And then Thursday afternoon, I got an email from 
Sarah Hotman that was sent out as a media advisory inviting press to come to this press conference after their tour of Sheridan Bethel Prison. And I RSVP'd because it is now Saturday. I was able to go drive to Sheridan and I was able to go drive to out to the federal prison. Um, so I thought, why not? I will give this a try. I didn't have a lot of time to prep. I wrote down a few possible questions to ask, but most of the questions I would have asked were answered in the press conference. I would, I might have had the opportunity to ask a question, but what I really want to know is where are the children who were taken from these detainees? And that is a question that nobody seems to know right now, and they're working on finding out the answers. Uh, Jeff Berkeley's office is working on that. So I think we're just going to have to stay tuned for now. As for what people can do, I'll be, because that's the question I keep getting from everybody. Um, a lot of people that I know, both online and in person, my friends and my family, they're all heartbroken. This makes them sick. They're wondering what can they do. And honestly, there's a lot of questions we have and we don't have a lot of answers, but I'll be trying to compile what information I can about what we can do to help these people. I'm not sure there's a lot. If you know any lawyers, I know there's several organizations that are trying to put together lawyers who can go and volunteer their services to go and meet with families or children or immigrants who need representation. So that is one thing. And I'll be looking into actions that people can take and see what I can find out. Right now, the action I am taking is I'm trying to get the word out about this. I'm going to be talking more in this podcast about the effects of trauma on children from my training and my experience as a preschool teacher, having dealt with children who exhibit some of these effects. Uh, trauma is far more common in children than you would think. I have dealt with many children who have issues with trauma. I have had some specific cases this year where it's been very challenging and the behavior issues are very real and it, it, it breaks your heart for these children. So I'll talk a little bit more about that. I'll talk about two basic things I want to go over. The effect that trauma has on children and how caregivers should approach a child who is affected by trauma. This is important because we are traumatizing these children. Many of these children have already been through trauma because they are refugees from difficult situations in their home country. And then the experience of traveling to the U.S. and then being taken from their parents is so psychologically debilitating and could be this could be permanent damage we cannot fix that these children will have to live with this for the rest of their lives and it is wrong it is quantifiable that you can say this is what happens when you take children from their parents in this in this emotional almost violent way that they were taken from their families and then we re-traumatize them through the treatment in these detention centers for children these shelters and facilities where a lot of these facilities are run by private companies, private contractors, nominally nonprofit, although it's difficult to say whether it is truly nonprofit given the amount of money being paid to CEOs. Regardless, I think we can say from news reports that there appears to be a serious lack of adequate training and hiring for the people who work in these centers given some of the actions we've heard about or the way that management is uh, communicating policies to them on how they handle different children. And I'm concerned by some of the photos that we've seen from some of the detention centers that might look harmless to some people, but as a trained educator, I look at it and I see 
I see a problem. I have alarm bells going off in my head and I see things that make me worry for these children. And I think a lot of it is trying to wallpaper over the problems, trying to make things look good to people who visit and say, oh, see how wonderful it is here. They have access to video games and they have brightly colored blankets and uh, they get to play foosball and pool. And then this ignores some of the more harmful things. And it doesn't matter if you give them games to play if they are not getting the attention and care and psychological support and emotional support that they need because there is a way to approach a child who is dealing with trauma. And well, the first thing you should do is reunite them with their families. But failing that, there are things that caregivers can do to help mitigate some of the effects. And I don't see any evidence that that is being done. This, this is very concerning to me. The children who are being held, I wanna go over the those two things. How the trauma that they've been through and continue to go through is affecting them and how we should be treating those children and caring for them in light of that trauma and how they are not being cared for by any evidence I have seen. And from the stories that we've heard of children being told they may not touch each other and caregivers being told you may not touch a child, you may not hug them, it makes me want to cry. My job is to care for children. My job is to be there for them as somebody who gets to know them and loves them and cares for them in a way that is different from a parent, but is very powerful nonetheless. When children are with us, there are things we can do to help them, especially if their home life is troubled. And I've seen a lot of children with various different uh, upheavals in their lives and how that immediately affects their behavior in the classroom and their ability to cope with difficulty in life. So, there is a lot that we can do to help these children, even if we can't reunite them with their families right away. That is the most important thing we could do, is to reunite them with their families. Failing that, we need adequate oversight. We need transparency. We need to know what is going on in these detention centers. We need to not accept this false claim that it's about the children's privacy, because it is not. That is, it is a way for them to avoid accountability. And I want to know what's going on. I'm not going to jump to conclusions that the caregivers are being deliberately cruel. I've heard reports that the people who work there honestly do care about the children. But if you are limited in what you are able to do by facility and the resources available to you and the management, there may be only so much those caregivers can do. And then some of them may not be trained adequately to know what to do. And some of them, I, I want to talk about this a little more later, but I think that a lot of people, when they go into early childhood education or working with older children uh, and youth, sometimes we have to be retrained to allow ourselves to care, to allow ourselves to love. There is something in our society that tells us you have to put a barrier between yourself and the children. You have to not touch. You have to be uh, stern. Uh, I've heard stories of people saying, I as a teacher don't allow myself to smile for the first month. And I find that heartbreaking. 
you don't have to put a wall between yourself and children to maintain your authority and your position as a teacher. You just don't have to. Yes, it's true. You are their teacher, not their friend, if there's ever any discrepancy, but I don't see how you can't be both their teacher and their friend. These children mean a lot to me, and I think it's, it's foolish to pretend that that's not true. You can maintain a professional sense of uh, boundaries and still care, and it's very important. And the faculty teach student teachers at my workplace because, as I've mentioned before, I teach community college at a community college preschool, and we have a lot of student teachers in our classroom. The their professors come in and coach our classroom teachers sometimes on what we should be doing to demonstrate to the student teachers the best practices. And one thing that I've had to retrain myself is that it's okay to love these children. It's okay if a child is sobbing and crying, instead of telling them, get over it, or you're okay, you'll be fine. It's okay to pick them up, put them in your lap, and snuggle them close. And it breaks my heart to hear that these people are being told you may not touch this two-and-a-half-year-old or this two-year-old child who is screaming and crying for her mother. You may not allow these elementary school-age siblings to hug each other. There are boundaries you can have for the sake of appropriateness, and inappropriate touch is a concern, but it is not that difficult to draw the line. So, for example, at my school... We tell the children, save your kisses for family, so that you can blow a kiss, but please don't kiss other children. That is also an issue of germs. You know, it's a sanitary thing, and it's also an easy way to just deal with that whole inappropriate touch issue for that. Hugs are absolutely fine, although we do encourage children to ask first before hugging somebody because we want to teach the concept of consent. And... It's also important for teachers, too, because children will sometimes come up behind you and throw their arms around you and knock you off balance. I have worked with disabled teachers who are unsteady on their feet and have actually been knocked over onto the floor by children doing this. It can happen. So it's important to teach kids to ask first. But I always tell children, and this is something that I learned from my training, and I I tell them this, is please ask me for a hug, but I will always say yes. We do tell children, do not lie on top of each other. Because, you know, we'll get wrestling, we'll get roughhousing, and I'll see children with their bodies on top of each other. And aside from inappropriateness, this could also be a safety concern because you've got two boys roughhousing and wrestling on the floor, and then a third boy jumps on top of them and could hurt somebody at the bottom of the pile. So, you know, there's very good reasons for limiting that kind of behavior. But hugging is absolutely appropriate. Sorry to cut that off right there. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode. I thought it was something I wanted to share. Uh, I think a lot of us are feeling so very raw and emotional about the news this week and when the last couple of weeks. And I think that it is worthwhile and important for us to acknowledge that humanity, for us to acknowledge our initial reactions and how that makes us feel. So that's why I've decided to release this audio. And I appreciate your listening. I realize it's very poor quality because I did record it with my cell phone in my car while I was driving home. So you can hear a lot of extraneous noise I was not able to remove. But um, my next episode, I may put up some more bonus episodes, some more material. 
I would like to cover my return to Sheridan Federal Prison yesterday because on Monday, June 18th, I went back to Sheridan Prison where a group of people met. There were about 1,245, I believe was the final number, and they met for a vigil at the park right next to the prison. This event was hosted by a number of different groups, including the Interfaith Movement for Immigrant Justice. So there were quite a few members of the clergy represented. There were prayers said. There was singing. And we ended the vigil by turning to the prison where we had been told that the detainees could actually see and hear us. And we sang for them, this land is your land. And we shouted, estamos con ustedes, estamos contigo. So for those of you who don't speak Spanish, like I don't, I had to ask, estamos con ustedes means we stand with you, but it's formal. And estamos contigo means the same thing, but in an informal way. So I would like to report some more back on that. I have some audio and some video and some photos I've already posted to Twitter, but I will share that in a later episode. But I will also keep you posted because there is a lot happening very quickly. There are marches and rallies being scheduled for June 30th. But a lot of us are saying that's too far away. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see more actions happening sooner. And honestly, I think we might be getting to the point where people are going to be taking to the streets and possibly staying there Occupy style. We will have to wait and see what happens. I will report back as soon as I'm able. So in the meantime, take care. Take care.